0: We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. My wife hates sad endings. She hates when we're watching a movie or a TV show and we don't get a happy ending. I'm kind of one of those weirdos where I actually kind of like sad movies. Uh, But I admit that if that's all there was, I don't think I would be as happy of a person. Because I think everyone, to some degree, it's almost written within us that we, we long for a happy ending. We want to see the characters and the people that we love triumph, overcome their difficulties. We want to see rights made wrong. We want to see happily ever after. And this is not just the case for our books and our movies and our TV shows. This is the case for the very story of humanity. Although mankind's history is by no means fiction, it is nonetheless a story. It is the story that God is telling. It is the story that God is writing. And so as we come to the end of the Nicene Creed, which is basically an incredibly small snapshot of not just who God is, but what story he's writing, we can be encouraged and we can rest assured that God intends to give his people their happily ever after. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 We're going to read a very, very long portion of Scripture today, but I want to encourage you, uh, we're only going to be really focusing on the parts that help us understand the creed, so don't panic, Uh, it should still be a normal sermon time, but it's going to be a long sermon text, and glory to God for that. Would you stand? We're going to begin in verse 12 and read through the rest of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, thus saith the Lord, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, but my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there also is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass what is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ." Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This bars the reading of god 's word. Please be seated. Well, this is our thirteenth and final week in the Nicene Creed for Well, the first one was an introduction. So really for 12 weeks, we've been working through the creed and we finally come to the end. And as I said, we're not going to cover every single verse that we just read. I I want us to just highlight some of the major portions of this chapter that will help us to understand the creed. Because you could really break the creed down into two, maybe three sections. But I'll, I'll break it down into two and just say the creed is essentially saying two things. That we will one day resurrect into eternal life... And that while we wait for that, we're looking forward to it. That we are looking forward to this resurrection unto life. And so we're going to let Paul break these down for us. So the first thing we're going to look at is why the resurrection? What is it? Why does it happen? I want us to look at the resurrection. Why the resurrection? And we're going to just take verses 16 through 20 for a moment to begin seeing this. Read verses 16 through 20 with me. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's stop there. So as you probably were able to pick up on by the context, what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is he is writing to the Corinthians because apparently they've been deceived. False teachers have crept into the church, and they sound like Christians because they believe that Christ raised from the dead. These false teachers agree, yeah, Christ was raised from the dead. But what they're denying is that we too will be. Christ was raised for a special purpose. Per, you know, purpose, but that's not our purpose. We are going to, our spirits will go on and we will have a, a spiritual existence. They are denying what we call the general resurrection. And we call it the general resurrection because if I were to just say the words, do you believe in the resurrection? The first thing that's probably going to pop in your mind, as it should, is the resurrection of Jesus. And so, they affirmed the resurrection but what they don't affirm is what we call the general resurrection which is the resurrection of all mankind the resurrection of christians one day we too just like jesus will come out from our graves and that's what they are denying and so paul had to address these corinthians shamefully for abandoning the doctrine of not the resurrection but the general resurrection however The point that Paul is trying to make here, though, is that while these are are two separate events, right, Christ raised from the dead 2,000 years ago and our resurrection is still to come, in many ways you cannot separate these things. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of his people are linked in such a way that Paul says one must follow the other. If Christ raised, then we will. If Christ didn't raise, then neither will we. But Paul says these things are linked in such a way that they cannot be separated. One is a cause, the other is an effect. He really gives us this hint in verse 20 when he describes Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There's two different metaphors Paul is using there. The first one is as the scriptures tend to do. He describes those who have died not as the dead, but as those who are sleeping. And that is because Paul sees sleep as a metaphor for death and resurrection. You fall asleep every night, but you wake up. And so Paul, to continuously put into the mind of Christians that there is a resurrection coming, refuses to talk about death and he instead talks about sleep so that we always remember, yes, we will fall asleep, but we're going to wake up. But really the metaphor I want us to focus on here is this idea of the first fruits. Christ is the first. First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What on earth is Paul talking about there? Paul is using a metaphor that he's drawing from the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you can read this in Deuteronomy and uh, I believe in Exodus as well. There was a commandment for the people to give to the priests a first fruits sacrifice or a first fruits offering. What that meant is if you're a farmer and you're expecting a yield, obviously things don't just all sprout up all at the exact same time. Right? It kind of comes progressively. And so whenever your, your crop, whatever it is that you grow, the first fruits that, that bear fruit, the first crop that you see, you are supposed to give the best of it to the priest. And they called that the first fruits because the understanding was as a farmer, once you see that fruit bear up, you know, okay, it's season, the rest is coming soon. And so when Paul describes Christ as the first fruits, what he's saying is that we should see the resurrection of Christ and know there's a harvest coming. There's one little early resurrection, but it follows that there must be a huge resurrection of many, many more to come. That is why he is the first fruits. He is just the first fruit of this larger resurrection harvest that God is eventually going to reap. That's why, by the way, we just sang in our our song, Come Behold This Wondrous Mystery, we, we sang, What a foretaste of deliverance. What are we saying? We're saying when we see the resurrection of Christ, we just get a small taste of our own deliverance. We're supposed to see our own resurrection in Him. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected as we will be when He comes. That's exactly what we're talking about. Christ resurrected as a first fruit, which means we too will resurrect. And what this means is that because He is the first to resurrect... The rest of the dead will also be raised in the same way. And Paul gives us the reasoning for that. Why is there this connection? Look at verses 21 through 22. Here's the theological reasoning behind it. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So here we are introduced to a very, very important theological concept that theologians nowadays refer to as federal headship. This is what we're learning about in this section is the idea of federal headship. God created all of mankind to be in covenant with him. Every person that you ever encounter in your entire life is in a covenantal, legal real relationship with God. And these covenants have mediators. They have heads, sureties, heads of the covenant, the representatives of the covenants. The first covenant that God ever made with human beings, he made right when he created us, and the covenant head of that covenant was the first man, Adam. Adam was not just the first man created. He was intended to be the representative and the covenant head for all of his posterity, for the rest of human beings. So this is why Adam represents and stands on behalf of all human beings. He is the representative of humanity. But what do we know as Christians is the problem? He broke his covenant. He broke covenant. He sinned and destroyed the covenant. And so upon him came the covenant curses. He lost his righteousness Sin infected him, infected the world. There were additional curses. This is always what happens. When you break the terms of a covenant, there's a penalty. Adam broke covenant and brought a penalty upon himself and the creation that he was representing. And so federal headship leads to another doctrine known as original sin. We believe that from the moment of your conception, you are at enmity with God. From the moment of your conception, you are a sinner. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. And all of this is because of our covenantal standing. We come from Adam, and Adam represents us. That means that when you are conceived, you can only receive from your head, from your representative, what he has to offer you. And all Adam has to offer you is guilt, a broken covenant, and a corrupted nature. So that's why you are conceived and born with guilt, you can't go to heaven, and a corrupted nature. You're a sinner. You have received from Adam what Adam can give you, which is death. Death of your soul and death of your body. That's what your covenant head gives to you. And this is why we have a need for Jesus. This is why Jesus came to be the new Adam. Adam. Which we just sang in our song. See the true and better Adam. We'll see it later in 1 Corinthians 15. Where Jesus is literally called the last Adam. He called him earlier in in Romans chapter 5. He is referred to as the second Adam. Jesus came to be the Adam that we lost. Jesus is the new and better Adam. And he obeyed the covenant. Lived it out perfectly. Fulfilled all of its legal obligations, and so that now, when you believe in Christ, what is actually happening is you are being transferred from the broken covenant of Adam into the fulfilled covenant of Christ. And now, Adam is no longer your head. Jesus is your head. And so, in the same way that when you were in covenant with Adam, you were receiving what your covenant head could give you, once you are in Christ, all you can do is receive now what Christ can offer you. You have to receive what your mediator offers. You have no choice to receive from Adam what he offers, and you have no choice to receive from Christ what Christ offers. And let me ask you this rhetorically. What does Christ offer you? Corruption, sin, guilt, and death? Life. Christ offers you life of your soul, which we call regeneration and sanctification, and of your body. So it is impossible... To be in Christ and not resurrect. Because once you're in union with Him, you have to receive what He gives you. And He gives you life. The fullness of life. Of your soul and your body. This is why if you're in Christ, you have to resurrect. You must resurrect. You will receive life to your body. And so we see... Again, by the way, this helps us actually full out our picture of the gospel too. We tend as Protestants to look at the gospel in purely legal terms. And that's okay. We have to do that because that was the aspect of the gospel that was lost in the medieval ages and in the Roman Catholic Church. And so we've really emphasized the, the legality of the gospel, that our sins have been paid for. But there's more happening than just a legal process. We see now why Christ had to die and resurrect. And it's not just to forgive the legal debt of our sins. Because we didn't just receive a legal debt from Adam. We received a broken nature. Christ has to fix that too. And so when Christ dies and resurrects, He now has two things He can offer us. We can now receive from Him a death to our old self and a resurrection life. If Christ never rose from the dead, He would have no resurrection to impart to you. But he died so that we can die to our sins. And he rose again so that we can rise again. The death and resurrection of Christ were absolutely essential for us to die and resurrect. Because we are receiving from our covenant head what he offers. And that's, again, what Paul is saying. Death came through one man, life comes through one man. In the same way that Adam brought death to people, Christ brings resurrection to people. They are the representative heads of humanity. And so that is what the resurrection is, and it's why we resurrect. So before we move on, let's just affirm that the creed is correct, that we will resurrect one day. If we are in Christ, we will resurrect unto glory one day. But that raises the next question. There, there really has to be more to the story than even just that, right? Because let me submit to you that if we don't fill this in with more details, this is bad news. Right? Why would I want to go back after I've died? Life in the body is miserable. Why would I want it back? Right? Because our creed, it tells us that we, we look for the resurrection. And that's just an ancient way of essentially saying that we long for it. Right? So what the creed is trying to do is we're, we're not just trying to stoically and academically affirm the resurrection as a, as a fact of history. It just, it's something that will happen. Right. The sky is blue. We will resurrect. Move on. It's trying to tell us, no, not only is this like a real thing that's happening, but it's something that we orient our entire lives toward. It gives hope and definition and meaning to everything we do. Our entire lives are all oriented towards this great hope and event that we will resurrect. We long for it every day and we live in light of it. That's what the creed is trying. We are looking toward it. We are looking for it. This is supposed to be like the meaning of our life right here. And we, again, so I asked the question, why is going back into this body that I've struggled and been so miserable and how is that so important? Why should I look forward to that? As a matter of fact, one of the earliest and most dangerous heresies that has ever challenged the Christian church made this exact same argument. The earliest, most dangerous heresy was known as Gnosticism. And now there's a lot of things that make up Gnosticism, Gnosticism and over time it evolved into different sects so it's, it's hard to define it in like one fell swoop. But the one thing that the Gnostics are all known for it was like a key tenet of their theology is that material equals bad. Physical equals bad. And to some degree we can experientially relate. Right? Things, what do we know in science? Things always move from a, a state of Of peace to chaos, from newness to deadness. Things die, things corrupt. The material world is broken and full of pain and suffering and evil. And so the Gnostics' hope was to get out of here. To get out of this body of corruption and death. To get out of this world of corruption and death. They thought material stuff was bad. And so, the hope for the Gnostics, the hope for their eternity, was a spiritual existence outside of the prison of the material world. And so, for them, resurrection was hell. It's, I finally free, and then you chain me and enslave me in this body of death again. The Gnostics hated the idea of the resurrection. But as we can see, Paul is not a Gnostic. Paul is very clearly anti-Gnostic. Paul says my entire life's worth is wrapped up in my belief of resurrection. He says that if there is no resurrection, we of all men are most to be pitied. And we should eat and drink for tomorrow we die. We have no hope. We're still dead in our sins and tomorrow we perish. Paul's entire life purpose was wrapped up in the resurrection. Paul hates Gnosticism. So the question is, why is Paul right and the Gnostics wrong? Why should we look for the resurrection? And I want to give you two reasons from Paul. The first reason is because it's glorious. It's not a return to the old way of things. It's a return to a glorious existence. Let's read verses 35 through 44 together. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. Therefore, there is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. For if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So Paul says the resurrection of the dead is something... Well, actually, let me take a step back here. We talked about in Sunday School how the resurrection of the dead is something that you can't know through nature, through reason. It's just something that has to be revealed to you, right? It doesn't come through general revelation, which is nature and conscience. It has to come through Scripture, through God's Word. There are some things that we can only learn through God's Word. The Gospel, things of that nature... And this is a miracle that, that we have to have revealed to us. But we talked about in Sunday school that when you once you learn of the resurrection of the dead, you do start to see the metaphor of resurrection in nature all over the place. Uh, just to give a couple of examples. Just yesterday, Layla and I were talking about how happy we were to see the weather start warming it up. Talking about starting to see a little bit of green coming forth. So nature itself goes through a kind of annual death and resurrection process every year everything dies it gets cold and dark and dead and then the flowers start to bloom and the sun starts to shine we we saw paul use uh, the, the the metaphor of sleep you die and resurrect metaphorically speaking every night every morning and and even when you do that you're doing that in accordance with the sun and the moon uh, every single day we go from night to light night to light there's darkness, but then the sun rises. There's darkness. So we start to see these resurrection metaphors all over the place. And Paul has found a metaphor that he wants to use to help us understand our resurrection. And he chooses one of a seed. He chooses this, this resurrection metaphor of a seed. That you, you put this thing in a seed, you know, by itself is really not glorious. I, I know all seeds look different, but for the most part, it's just a small brown thing. There's really nothing special about a seed. As far as we know, it's completely dead. It's just a dead little thing. So you take this dead thing and what do you do with dead things? You bury them. So you bury this dead body. But then what happens after you bury the dead body? It comes back. But here's the point of Paul's metaphor. Although it comes to life, this dead thing comes to life and it's the same thing, right? You don't put a seed in the ground and then a magical fairy comes and unplants it and then puts a tree there. The same thing that you put into the ground comes up out of the ground. So it's the same thing, but its qualities are quite different. What you put in the ground was this dead little kernel, but what came out was golden wheat or, or a beautiful mustard tree or whatever it might be. This glorious thing returns. And, and this, is, this is what Paul is trying to emphasize Like when he compares the, the different glories in the heavenly bodies. He talks about, you know, in, in the sky there's, there's stars. And they're all the same thing, but they differ in their levels of glory. Uh, Did you know that there is a star? We have discovered a star in the universe that can... Actually, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let, let Let me take a step back. I do want to tell you that. Let me take a step back and remind us, what is Paul trying to emphasize here? Paul's trying to emphasize in this passage that you're going to receive your same body, but it will be different. It will be glorified. The Gnostics were afraid of getting back this body of corruption and death and life. And Paul's trying to tell us, yeah, you're going to get your body back, but without the corruption, without the death, without the pain. And he uses this seed. So you're going to get the same thing in essence, but it will be different in its quality. And that's the example he's using, not just with the seeds, but even he brings up stars and fish. Right? So, I hate to break it to Charles Darwin, but stars and fish are different. God made them differently. They're not the same thing. Stars have one body, fish have one body, and humans have one body. So what's the point that Paul's trying to make with this? He's saying when you resurrect, you're not transitioning from one thing to something new. It's not like a fish becoming a star. You will always have a human body. You always have your human body. In in the secular world, there's this saying: when a person dies, sometimes people say, "Heaven gained another angel." It's a sweet sentiment, but it's terrible theology. You will not become an angel when you die. They have their own bodies. God has given you, as a human, a human body. You will not become an angel. You're going to be you. You're going to be you with your body in glory. But just because it's your same body doesn't prevent it from having a different level of glory. And that's the point he tries to make then with the stars. So his first point, you'll get your body back. You'll still be you. But your second point, it's going to be way different. It's going to be glorified. And that's where the analogy of the stars comes in. And so here's, here's what I wanted to tell you. There is a star that we've discovered in our universe that is five billion times the size of our sun I mean that's a number we really can't even fathom but just try our sun which can fit what is it like a hundred million earths that's how big our sun is and there's a star out there that can fit five billion suns inside of it that is a more glorious star than our sun it's bigger it's brighter it's hotter it's heavier it's more glorious but at the end of the day they are both the same thing They're both stars. And this is a rough analogy for saying your body's not going to change in the sense that you're not going to become a different kind of creature. You're going to be a human. It's going to be you. but You're going to be far more glorious than you ever imagined. You'll be far more glorious than you ever possibly imagined. That's why we look forward to the resurrection. It's going to be glorious. When we get our bodies back, they simply won't be the same. I love Paul says this in 2 Corinthians He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So Paul is agreeing with the Gnostics. He's agreeing with you that, yeah, I get it. In this tent, in this body, in this earth, we groan. It's burdensome. But do not be like the Gnostics and think the hope to this burdensome groaning is to become naked. To have no clothing whatsoever. No, he's saying our hope is not that we would abandon clothing, but that we would be, on the contrary, further clothed. That we would receive, not nobody body at all, but a body that doesn't groan. Paul's hope is not a spiritual existence. It's a physical existence, one that's swallowed up by life. An immortal, imperishable, glorious body where there is no groaning, no suffering, no pain, no death. That is when we will never experience sickness, or disease, or sin, or aging, or death. But what I love about this verse is Paul's not just talking about our bodies. He's talking about all of creation. The whole tent that we dwell in, both our personal tent and our creation tent, it's all groaning together, implying that it will all be glorified as well. Something he very explicitly says in Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. He hinted at in this text what he very explicitly talked about in 1 Corinthians 15. That even animals and the celestial bodies that God has created, they too need to be glorified. And so it is not just our bodies being glorified. It is all of God's creation entering into this state of glorification beyond what we can imagine. As a matter of fact, if you don't believe me, that's exactly how Paul describes it, quoting from the Old Testament. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I can't tell you what it's going to be like. I don't know what you're going to do. I don't know what capabilities. There's so much I can't tell you, but here's what I can tell you. Try to imagine it, it's better. And then try to imagine it even more, and it's better. You have never seen anything like it. You've never imagined anything like it. God has prepared for us an inimaginable glory. And so what am I trying to tell you? It's very clear. Saints, be excited for the resurrection. Look for it. Long for it. But it gets better. God's glory gets better because the glory of the resurrection is not the only reason why we look for it. We also look for it because it is everlasting. The Creed says that we look not just for the resurrection but for life in the world to come. Now I personally am not crazy about that, uh, that, that translation. The world to come, the word world in Greek could be translated as either world or age. I like I like what some of the renditions of the creed say, the age to come. Because there's this understanding in Scripture that there is a a coming age that is eternal in its length. Right? Jesus references this in Matthew 10, where he says, Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. This is what the creed is talking about. We look forward to this, an eternal age, an age of eternal life. And so the second reason we look for the resurrection is number one, because it's glorious. Number two, because it's eternal. Let's read verses 50 through 55 of our text together. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Wow. Verse 50 has confused a lot of Christians. Um, Paul says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. They think that that's a proof text that we will be spirit beings in the resurrection. But that completely goes against the entire context of what Paul's been reading. saying. Right? Paul's obviously talking about the resurrection of a body. Um, He makes this explicitly clear earlier. Read verses 45 through 49 with me. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is also from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Paul is being very clear. You're going to have a body just like Jesus. And he calls Jesus' body a spiritual body. So when you see the text talk about how we have to put on a spirit body, it's not saying something that isn't material. Jesus' body was a spirit body, but it was material. Right? So when Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about materialness in general. He's talking about our current condition. Humanity is represented as flesh and blood as it is now. And yes, your body as it is right now is not ready for heaven. Why? Two reasons. It's perishable and it's mortal. It decays and it dies. But the age to come is eternal. So you can't have a body like that. And so that is why it is in the resurrection that we will receive a new body. One like Christ. One that is imperishable and immortal. And those things are different. Immortal means you'll never die. Imperishable means that you are free from any kind of corruption. Your body and all of creation will be freed from any defectation. Any wrongdoing whatsoever. There will be no pain, no disease, no sickness, no death of any kind. We will be imperishable and immortal. And guess what? We will be like that forever. Forever. That's why the Gnostics are wrong. That's why Paul hates Gnosticism. Paul looks for the resurrection and the age to come because we will live in glory with God forever. And now you can see, having filled it all out, now you can see why Paul believes that this message gives the entire meaning of our lives. Like, look at verse 58. Therefore, so in light of all of this teaching about our resurrection... Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul knows that it is our resurrection that gives meaning to our lives. Why do you wake up every morning ready to serve the Lord? Because he's going to resurrect you one day. Why do you wake up every morning with hope and joy? Because he's going to resurrect you one day. Therefore, be immovable. And, and, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. The resurrection gives meaning to our entire lives. For Paul, we serve the Lord and we now know that everything we do has meaning and purpose and reward because we will resurrect and see Christ face to face. And so that is why we are supposed to be living our lives as people in God's story who know and believe that He has in fact promised us A happily ever after.